Exodus 7, beginning at verse 14. This is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with a staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, Stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned And went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Would you pray with me, friends? Father, before us, spread on these pages, is indeed your holy, inerrant, and authoritative word. And now, just as ever, we stand in need of your help. And so as we bow now before you, we cry out to you that you would take hold of us by your word and by your Holy Spirit. Help us understand and apply all that we read tonight by the help of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we do ask it. Amen. Oftentimes you'll hear the metaphor of losing the forest for the trees, and we understand what that phrase means, at least in theory, Uh, but a few of us have the experience of understanding that metaphor quite literally. A number of years ago, when I was working at a Christian summer camp, a few of us counselors were spending time together on our weekend off. Sometimes we'd go off into town or go home, but that particular weekend we decided to just stay on the campgrounds and relax together. One afternoon we were hiking through the forest and exploring some of the lesser-known trails and sections of the woods. We had a fair idea of where we were going, and we knew where the upper cabins were in case we needed to turn around. That was a a fair and and recognizable landmark. Well, a few hours went by, and we were talking and laughing, and no one was really paying attention to where we had gone, and it was beginning to get dark, so we needed to make our way back. The only problem was, due to our lack of attention, 
we weren't sure quite which way back was. Now, we wandered around for a few more minutes, and eventually we came upon a fire tower, which we knew was somewhere in the area, but we weren't precisely sure where. So we climbed to the top of the fire tower and looked around, and from there, we could see the lake shore, we could see the nearby ice cream shop in the village, we could see the main campus of the camp, and we could see the upper cabins directly in front of us, about a 10-minute walk or so to the north. From this vantage point, we could make sense of the whole forest, and we realized that we really weren't that far from our intended destination, and it would be fairly easy to get there. But down on ground level, among the trees and under the brush and the bushes and foliage of the forest, it was almost impossible for us to make sense of where we were going and how we needed to get back. Studying scripture can sometimes be like that. We do need to pay attention to the details. We need to be attentive to what's going on. Immediate context is crucial in our study of God's word. We must handle it with exacting care and precision. But sometimes, with our noses buried and our eyes zeroing in with a laser-like focus on such details, it's possible that we might miss the forest for the trees. We can see what's happening immediately around us in any given chapter or subsection of a chapter in a book of scripture, but occasionally we can't quite make sense of it all. We, we know where we are, we know what sentences we just read, we know what the words mean, but sometimes we don't know quite where we're going in the narrative or in the sweep of redemptive history. It's good from time to time to see the big picture and not just the details. And so, tonight, we're covering four chapters of the book of Exodus to give us the big picture. Even though we focus specifically on this first plague that God brings in judgment against Egypt, we're actually going to look at the first nine plagues because these nine plagues really repeat the same themes over and over, driving the same message home. Now, we may go back and look at each one separately on another occasion, but at least for tonight, we want to consider the first nine plagues as a a block of sorts, and then we'll come back, certainly, and look at the tenth and final plague on Egypt in the future, the Passover and the death of the firstborn. So, as we're thinking about these first nine plagues, there's four ideas that I'd like for us to follow in our study. First, God's glory, then God's judgment, then God's people, And finally, God's servant. God's glory, God's judgment, God's people, and God's servant. So let's think through those things together as we find them, iterations of them in all those first nine plagues here in the Exodus story. First, God's glory. What is God up to here? What does the Lord do, or rather, why does the Lord do what he does in striking Egypt with these ten plagues? Well, we'll get into the plagues and into the judgments themselves in just a moment, but as an intro, let's think about the foundation and the drive behind all of the signs and all of the wonders that the Lord is about to inflict upon Egypt. You may remember recently as we've been studying through Exodus, we've been arguing that salvation is always a double-edged sword. In Scripture, whenever there is salvation for one party, it is almost always at the expense of another party. Remember, Noah and his family saved. The world, destroyed, judged. Israel, redeemed. Egypt, judged. All of God's elect, gloriously redeemed. God's own son, Jesus, the Redeemer, crushed. Judgment and curse fell upon him so that we might receive deliverance. That's how it often works. 
It's a striking theme that runs like a golden thread through Scripture. God's wisdom and God's glory displayed in salvation through judgment. Almost as a hyphenated expression. God's glory in salvation through judgment may be one of the biggest governing principles in all of Holy Scripture. And that's the answer to our question. What is the Lord up to? Why does he do all that he's about to do in Egypt? And the answer is his glory. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it like this. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby, for his own glory, he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. The point that God seeks to drive home, both for Pharaoh and the Egyptians, for Moses and Aaron and the Israelites, and for all of us, God wants to make the point that his agenda and all the things that he does is to make his great name known. There's a point that I think we admit to as a kind of throwaway line far too often, right? Why do we exist as a church? For God's glory. Why did God make birds and trees and mountains and seas? For his glory. Yeah, 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 for his glory. We get it. It's a good answer. It's a safe answer. It's a reformed answer. It's a biblical answer. But brothers and sisters, we would do well to ponder and meditate and grasp this reality. It is not merely a pocket answer or a throwaway line in a theologically safe grappling with these concepts. That all that God does, all that he commands, all that he has created, all that he has ordained to come to pass is for the display of his own magnificence. It is for the showcasing of his own beauty and majesty. It is for the exhibition of his own brilliance and wisdom and the display of his grace and mercy and his terrible holiness and his might and his love. For the, for the portrayal and the placarding of his own awesome and awful and incomprehensible splendor. Everything that God does is for the exalting of himself, the one in whom there is no darkness and for the display of his glory and grace. Everything God does is to make much of God. Everything God does is to make much of God. Oh, that we would make much of him in all our lives and thoughts and all of our actions. Now, you say, that sounds tremendous. Where do I see that impetus in the text? Chapter 7, looking back up at verse 5, you see, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. Then down at verse 17, more properly in our pericope tonight, chapter 7, verse 17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Or later on, chapter 8, verse 10, Moses said to Pharaoh, tomorrow be it as you say so, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Or further on, chapter 9, verse 14, for this time I will send my plagues on you yourself and upon your people so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. This is what God is doing. That is his purpose and design in all the works of his hands from creation through providence to redemption. It's why he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, that his name might be known. Jesus came to make God known. Jesus came to make God known. It's God's agenda in the life of his people. It's God's agenda in your life. This is eternal life, Jesus says. John 17, 
Verse 3, that should sound familiar to you. We've been there just recently with Dr. Wilborn as we've been studying through Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is eternal life, Jesus says, that you may know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. God's agenda, if you like, all the time is that his name may be known in all the earth and his glory displayed to the infinite joy of all those who trust his son. And on the other hand, to the distress and to the rebuke of all those who rebel against his rule. And so the big idea, the, the macro theme, if you like, of these first nine plagues is that God will be known. God will be known. He is displaying to us his character as a just judge to the distress and the rebuke of those who rebel against his rule and as a gracious savior to all who would trust in his son and come to him by faith. And then the next three ideas that we see in our sermon this evening really just serve to underscore that first idea. So the first macro theme that we see, not only in the first plague with the water turned to blood, but in all the eight subsequent plagues, all the nine subsequent plagues, is it is done for God's glory. Salvation through judgment for God's glory. Secondly, God's judgment. God's judgment. One of the ways that God displays his glory before the Egyptians is through his acts of judgment upon them, namely via these ten plagues. And as we look at our chapter 7 text tonight, the river of blood, of course, is the first of the ten plagues that afflicted the Egyptians. But rather than calling them plagues, the Bible prefers to call them signs and wonders. You see that here in chapter 7 near the top at verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. But nevertheless... The word plague, as we often popularly refer to these signs and wonders, it expresses an important truth. The term comes from the Latin plaga, meaning a blow or a wound, which is exactly what the plagues were. God said, I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. He says that in Exodus 3, verse 20. And actually the word plague gets used later on in one of the subsequent plagues, although predominantly The phrase, signs and wonders, seems to be the preferred language here. But nevertheless, when he performed his miracles along the Nile, God, isn't that exactly what he was doing? God was striking ten mighty blows against not only the Egyptians, but also their gods. That's one of the things we'll think about as we study through the ten plagues, is how this is not only a judgment against Pharaoh himself for his sinfulness and his stubbornness and his, his refusal to heed God's demands, but really this was an all-out assault on the entire panoply, the entire, the entire theology that the nation of Egypt subscribed to. When he performed these miracles along the Nile, that's what he was up to. Yes, turning the Nile from water to blood, it was a blow to their food source, it was a blow to their water source, it was a blow to their economy, all true, but more fundamentally, it was a blow to their national religion, their spirituality, their worldview. This is how one commentator explains it. And so Hapi, for example, is the name of the deified Nile River in Egyptian religion. It is worshipped, the river, as the giver of life. You see here, Hapi, the giver of life, bleeding out. The Nile turned to blood. Later on, Heket, the fertility goddess, her symbol was a frog. 
the giver of life, the fertility goddess, and here are these frogs piled up dead and rotting in the streets of Egypt. Some fertility goddess Heket was. The plague of livestock, that's designed to mock the sacred bulls of Egypt. Isis had bull's horns and the god Ra was a bull. They dropped dead at the say-so of Jehovah. Amun-Ra, the sun god in the ninth plague, his rising was considered to be a sign of the coming of life and the setting of death. But when God, the Lord, speaks, Amun-Ra's light does not shine. Darkness envelops Egypt. Close quote. Notice also how God embarrasses the Egyptian magicians here in our text. Notice verse 22. Or if you're using the New American Standard Translation, you may have noticed this. I love how the NASB renders it. The soothsayer priests. The soothsayer priests. Just further underscoring what we talked about last week. How these men, unwittingly perhaps, but nevertheless, were in the service of darkness the power of demons, and in the service of Satan, the soothsayer priests, the magicians of Egypt. You say, ah, but they repeated the same things that God did. He turned the water to blood. They were able to do the same by their secret arts, the text says. Yes, to an extent, but that was all they could do. Notice they could repeat the miracle. They could imitate what God did, but they could not overcome it. They could not reverse it. They could not remove it. And when they turned all of their staffs into serpents, Moses, Aaron's staff, swallowed theirs up, gobbled it up. And the same is true for these first three plagues. They could imitate the miracle. They could copy it seemingly, but they could not end it. They could, they could ironically make things worse, but they could not make it better. Frogs are, out of, are coming out of the nooks and crannies. What did the magicians do? They make more frogs. How does that help alleviate any of Egypt's misery? It doesn't. They can't take them away, but they can add to it. Thanks a lot, fellas. And it it doesn't get any better until the plague of gnats, when even then, they can't do anything. And even then, the soothsayer priests are forced to confess, this is nothing less than the finger of God. And so these magicians are exposed as frauds. God is exposing the sorcerers of Egypt as nothing less than con men, deceivers, men with with an empty and vain devotion to the Egyptian gods and goddesses who are themselves exposed as frauds, empty, weak, pathetic, and powerless idols. As one man puts it, the plagues of Egypt are designed to tell us that idols are mere empty things and devotion to anyone or devotion to anything except but to the Lord God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, will one day mean being reduced to a laughing stock. God is mocking the mighty claims of Egypt's magicians and their mighty deities, reducing them to absurdities. Be careful where you place your faith, where you rest your trust, your hope, your confidence. If it is not in Christ, then it is an idol. And one day, God will expose your idolatry as utter folly. Close quote. God is making a laughingstock of Egyptian theology and Egyptian national religion. But also, as he is assaulting the Egyptian Egyptian pantheon of deities, as he is judging Pharaoh, as he is pouring out wrath against the stubborn sin of Pharaoh, we must also see that in judging Egypt, 
with his wrath, he is extending a hope of mercy. This comes out especially in chapter 9, verse 18. You're welcome to turn there with me if you'd like to read it. Chapter 9, verse 18. The Lord speaking to Moses, telling him to communicate this. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause a very heavy hail to fall. Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die. Then, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So what's going on? Judgment is coming. That's what God sends Moses to tell to Egypt. And those who heard and responded rightly were spared. And of course we must realize that these signs and wonders in Exodus are but shadows of the holy wrath of a just God who will one day visit all the world in a great and final judgment. The message that Moses brought to Egypt, the message that Moses brought before the throne of Pharaoh is but a shadow of the message which the church still bears and brings forth to the world today. Is it not? Is it not still the message of the church to a desperate and dying world? What do we say? Fear the warning. and Fear and heed to the word of the Lord. More than that, find safety in his mercy. There is yet time. God does not wish that any should perish, but is willing that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And so he is warning us. With that extension and that pouring out of judgment upon Egypt, there was, not, there was nevertheless an extension of a hope of mercy. Even in Egypt's case, certainly in our case. The church comes proclaiming the whole counsel of God, all his glory, all his magnificence, and certainly his holiness, his wrath against sin, iniquity, and wickedness. But with that, there is hope yet of mercy today. While it is still yet called today, it's still today. The day has not yet ended. And so we come bearing that message, yes, of warning, but of hope before the watching world. There is yet mercy in Christ. Flee to him. And that their warning is for us as well. So, God's glory. Secondly, God's judgment. And then thirdly, God's people. Another macro theme that we see unfolding and coming out here amongst the recounting of the plagues upon Egypt, God's people. Inasmuch as the people of Egypt are riddled with strife and terror, notice how God's people in all of this are safe. Look, for example, at chapter 8, verses 20 to 23, regarding the plague of the flies. The Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. Say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me, or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and on your people. Verse 22, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarm of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. And you'll see the same thing as you go on in these plagues. If you look at chapter 9, verse 4, chapter 9, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 26, chapter 10, verse 23. See chapter 10, verse 23. They, 
here in the midst of the plague of darkness. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, they being Egypt. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Again and again and again, as the plagues fall on the enemies of God and the enemies of his cause, the people of God are safe. Even impenetrable, thick, black darkness renders Egypt functionally blind. Even then, there is light and day and visibility and brightness supernaturally encapsulated around Goshen. What a sight that must have been. Can you imagine it? Thick, heavy, blinding, black darkness all over the kingdom of Egypt, such that you can't even see your fingers in front of your eyes. And yet there is this somehow supernatural dome of light, this encapsulation of light around Goshen such that Israel could see and yet it served no help, no help whatsoever to cursed Egypt. What a thing that must have been. There is a safe place in the land of Egypt. Here's the point. There is a safe place. There is a land of refuge, a harbor of safety in the land of Egypt and it is where the people of God are. It's where the people of God dwell. I love how one commentator puts it. There is safety and refuge from the judgment and wrath of God. It is where the people of God are gathered. There is only one place where you may be free from judgment and condemnation. It is by taking your place through faith in Jesus in the great assembly of the born again. It is in belonging to the true people of God. You are safe. Through every trial... In the midst of every storm, he will hold you secure. He will hold you secure, and no wrath will ever fall on you. There is therefore now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have fled to Christ, if you are hiding away in the land of Goshen, where the people of God dwell, you are safe for time and for all eternity. Close quote. Don't we love to sing it? Glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God, with salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile, smile at all thy foes. You can't be touched. There is safety, eternal safety and security among the people of God. So God's people, that's the third thing. And then fourthly and finally, God's servant. Another macro theme that we find coming out to us, unfolding across these plagues, God's servant. And as we think about the the theme or the idea of God's servant, there's really two servants that we must consider here, Pharaoh and Moses. Oftentimes we think of God's servant only in the positive sense, as as a servant, as as one who's joyfully serving and obeying the Lord. But, But let's think of it in its strictest sense for a moment. That is, a servant is one whom God uses to accomplish his purposes, In that sense, Scripture, as you may know, also refers to men like Nebuchadnezzar and Caesar as servants of God. So think first about Pharaoh as servant of God. Remember how we said that God's glory is revealed in salvation through judgment. Egypt is being judged, and more precisely, Pharaoh is the object of God's wrath and judgment, and yes, even God's glory, as Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Pharaoh seems utterly unwilling to submit to Moses' warnings and to God's rebukes. In fact, these chapters 
about the ten plagues talk about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in two ways. And those of you who have been long students of the book of Exodus likely already know this. Sometimes it is said that Pharaoh hardens his own heart, while at other times it is said that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. That's especially clear if you look at chapter 9, starting at verse 34, and then reading down through chapter 10, verse 1. Feel free to read along with me if you like. Chapter 9, verse 34. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these signs of mine among them. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And yet it was the will of the Lord that Pharaoh's heart should be hard. Who is responsible for Pharaoh's rebellion? It is Pharaoh. And yet the Lord, in his wondrous might, governed, you notice, even Pharaoh's rebellion. Governed even his rebellion so that his heart might be hardened, that he might execute his judgment, and that the world might know that there is none like the Lord our God. God judges, sometimes by hardening men's hearts and handing them over to their sin and rebellion. Perhaps no other passage of Scripture makes that abundantly clear as Romans chapter 1. In God's judgment, God gives them over to their debased desires and gives them over to this hardening of the heart. And we, as we resist and refuse the warnings of God, we harden our own hearts. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, held together in Holy Scripture. It's sobering and it's chilling when we realize that Pharaoh actually came awfully close to repentance. I wonder if you've noticed that as you've read through these passages before, and we'll think about this some more in the weeks to come. But chapter 8, verses 25 and 29, he seems to be willing to let Israel go. And then as Moses and Aaron depart from his presence, he changes his mind there. He does the same again in chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, and further on in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, even confessing, I have sinned, the Lord is right, asking Moses to pray for him and to seek his forgiveness. I have sinned, the Lord is right. That's a good-sounding sentence, isn't it? It looks like repentance. It sounds like repentance. It looks like the real deal. But mere words are not enough. How close Pharaoh came, and every time, how close he came, and every time he returned to his rebellion. Here's a warning, whether it applies to you, dear friends, or whether it applies to someone you know, a loved one of yours, take this word to a friend of yours that is toying with the idea of Jesus. Don't dabble with it. Don't dabble with repentance. Don't dabble with faith. Don't dabble with the truth claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. Far too much is at stake to merely toy with these things. Boys and girls, you need to know this too, do you not? That merely mouthing the correct words isn't good enough. Simply showing up and bowing our heads and closing our eyes at the right time and saying amen when we're supposed to isn't good enough. Just like Pharaoh, something that closely resembles repentance, isn't close enough. 
we must truly repent. Something that looks like repentance, something that sounds like repentance, something that appears to be repentance but isn't really repentance. The truth is, boys and girls, men and women, we must truly repent. We must truly hate sin. We must truly turn from sin. And we must truly and entirely trust in the perfection of Christ alone. A counterfeit repentance will not do. It's an ironic thing as we go through these chapters that with all these counterfeit miracles that the soothsayer priest, that the magicians are producing, perhaps the worst counterfeit is the counterfeit repentance that Pharaoh exhibits. The sooner we stop deluding ourselves by thinking that our feeble efforts or our attempts at goodness will somehow persuade God to let us into heaven, the better. It'll never work. It's not close enough. When it comes to entrance and access into the presence and the purity and the perfection of our thrice holy God, close enough or good enough, it's not a phrase in God's vocabulary. We must not harden our heart. We must repent for real and flee the wrath to come and cling to the righteousness of Christ alone. But then finally, let's consider that other servant, Moses, the servant of God. Have you noticed how Moses is the pivot point in every single one of these acts of judgment? He warns, Pharaoh resists. Moses acts, judgment falls. And then Pharaoh comes back to Moses, asks Moses to pray. Moses prays, judgment is lifted. Something happens, Moses, something happens, Moses, something happens, Moses. It's actually a picture pointing us to God's perfect servant, the greater Moses, by whose obedience and blood, by whose perfect intercession, the wrath of God that should fall on every sinner is lifted. And not merely because Jesus asks and asks nicely, but because he himself has paid the price in exchange. The wrath of God has fallen, but it fell on him so that it might not ever fall on us. Moses' obedience, Moses' persistence, Moses' continued acquiescence to God's instructions in light of Pharaoh's flagrant arrogance is an encouragement for all of us to press on. It's an encouragement for our own faithful obedience, despite all frustrating odds, despite all impediments. Press on, brothers and sisters, despite the setbacks you continue to endure. Moses' interceding for Egypt was a wondrous thing. But notice it was only temporary. And at best, it alleviated only earthly sufferings. It wasn't enough for eternity. However, when Christ obeys for you, and when he bleeds for you, and when he intercedes for you, the wrath of God that your sin and mine has incurred is taken away. The judicial eternal wrath of God has already been exhausted on the crucified Christ. You know the old line? Payment God cannot twice demand first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. There is safety and there is refuge in the people of God and in the Christ of the people of God, the one, the greater and better Moses, who ever lives to intercede for you. Praise God for this truth and praise God for the ministry of his word to our souls tonight. Let's all pray. Father, thank you for your servant Moses. Thank you for the awful wonders of Exodus and for these things of the Old Testament, as your word says, were written for our instruction. Moreover, we thank you for the good news about Jesus. Help us to tear from our hearts these idols of ours, to bow before the risen Lord, and even now, even this night, to truly repent 
and cling to Christ. And in him there we might find pardon and cleansing and forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.